0: Now we're going to read this in three sections today, and uh, getting smaller and smaller sections as we go on. Uh, I want you to pay very close attention as we read this first section, which will cover the first nine verses. It's uh, really interesting, but uh, really just try to try to focus. I know uh, our daughter came home one time when she was in like preschool, and and we told her to focus, and she did this. She goes, "Focus," and so I think that means. Uh, we still do it in our house when it's time to focus. you have to squeeze your hands together and stick them to your mouth. I assume her teacher was telling her to be quiet, but I don't actually know that. Uh, anyway, Luke 16, verse one, follow along as we read. He being Jesus at the beginning, He also said to the disciples, "There was a rich man who had a man- manager, and charges were brought against him to, were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions, And he called him and said to him. What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to him, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. The grass withers, the flower fades, but let us pray. Lord, this is your word, and as we come to it today, we we come to learn what you have to teach us so that we might believe rightly and we might live rightly in this life that you have given us. Please enlighten our minds, the Holy Spirit, give us spiritual understandings for, for the word of the Lord this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'll tell you right from the start that during seminary, there's this the the sense in which you you get really excited to preach on certain passages of scripture, right? They're all God's word, but some of them you just get excited and you think, I cannot wait till I can preach on this passage or that one. And most people's lists include things like Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. Or Philippians 121, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Or Romans 828, all things work together for good. Or 1 Corinthians 1031, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And you get really excited about these passages when you get to preach them. And everyone has their own list of what that might look like. Uh, just this dream preaching list. And this passage that we have just read this morning, I will tell you, has never been on anyone's list ever in the history of the world. Never. Not, not a chance of it. Uh, and, and the reason is because it's not normal. When when you first read this passage, if you're really you know focusing, paying attention to it, uh, it's it's a lot like well, when I was. When I was 16 and first learning to drive, I can remember the first time I went downtown to Houston, uh, and I turned down this street, and immediately I just knew something is not right. It does not feel right to me. It just, something wasn't right. I I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I I began to notice the signs all faced the other direction, and all the cars were parked facing me, and still I couldn't figure out what was going on. And, And then suddenly, some idiot pulls down the street and begins driving at me on my side of the street. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy must be drunk. What should I do? I begin to panic, um, you know, figuring out what's going on. Meanwhile, that guy was, was thinking the same thing about me because and you've probably figured this out a lot quicker than it took me to figure it out. But I was driving the wrong way on a one-way street. And, and that's what was going on in that moment. When we first kind of read this passage, it feels that way. Like something seems off. Something does not seem right. Because um, did, you, you, you read it and you think, did, did we just hear Jesus tell a story about a dishonest man doing a dishonest thing, and instead of condemning the man's behavior, uh, the, the, the boss in the parable through, you know, Jesus commends the man as though, as though he's actually done something praiseworthy? And, and, and did Jesus just really say this phrase, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth? What is, what is going on here? And he, he did say that. Now, and I, I tell you that, you know, that's, it's, it's such a weird, strange passage, and that's the reason no one reads this. It's on no one's list that thinks, I cannot wait to preach on that passage, because it's it's notoriously difficult to understand, and yet, here we are, right? Um, now, you probably know already, I don't have a future in advertising. I'm, I'm not your hype man if you need one. I can't imagine you, I just got you really excited about the passage before us, uh, but I want you to remember that this passage, as strange and weird as it is, is part of God's holy scripture. This passage, as strange and unusual as it might be, is is like all the others in the sense that it is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that that you and I, right, all of us who are looking to follow Christ, who are following Christ, um, can, as 2 Timothy 3.17 says, be complete, equipped for every good work. So, so we, we need to understand that. And, we, and we're going to unpack this then because when you're committed to expository preaching, you can't just skip the weird stuff. Uh, I don't think you can. And because Jesus has something to teach us in this passage. So let's get to it. Um, here's what's going on. Uh, the situation that Jesus is speaking into, the Pharisees are still there, uh, but now he's changed his focus. He's speaking to the disciples at this point, and he's telling a, a parable, right? A story that has, uh, an earthly story that has a spiritual meaning, uh, and here we see a business manager is caught, as verse 1 says, wasting his boss's finances, and the word wasting here, that's the, the same Greek word that's being translated that we saw back in the prodigal son when it was translated as a, that he squandered all of his property when he went to the far country. And, and in other words, what we're seeing here is he's mismanaging the, his boss's funds in, in some intentional dishonest way. And, and this shouldn't surprise us. These things still happen today. Uh, Enron, Bernie Madoff. And in fact, just last week, I, I, I saw a story of uh, a Texas bank manager who uh, actually let the, lit the bank on fire while she was trying to burn up all these files that would prove that she had stolen $11 million uh, over some years. She, she ends up burning it all down. Uh, anyway, the, the boss in the parable, of course, fires the manager, and the man's response uh, to being fired is, is is kind of funny on some level. It's pathetic on every level because you begin to see he's this white-collar worker, he, he, and he just can't possibly see how blue-collar work might be in, in, in his future. And, and so he's kind of saying, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm not strong enough to dig holes because, uh, you know, he works in the first century equivalent of a, a cubicle. And, and then he comes around to say, I, I can't beg because I- I'm too proud, right? That would be too shameful. Uh, never mind that he's just gotten caught squandering and dishonestly managing his, his boss's money. Uh, but begging's just below him. And, and yet he's got this plan. He thinks, if I, fa- if I act fast enough, then then I can do something in the favor of my clients so that they will actually do things for me later on once I'm fired. And and so his plan is dishonest, uh, and that's clearly becoming his thing. The plan will accomplish what he wants to accomplish, though. Uh, Make friends who will help him out, once the time to be manager has fully run out during his time of unemployment. Uh, And so indeed, he does act quickly. He lowers a a few people's bills significantly, which he can do since the boss has no idea what anyone owes. He's the one who knows this. He can switch these things. And it's a massive discount that we're talking about. Nearly a a thousand gallons of oil and a hundred measures of wheat. Uh, Anyone Who knows what a measure of wheat is? Anyone? No. Um, what if we translated that to bushels, right? A thousand bushels of wheat. You know what that means. No one else knows. It's a farmer term. Uh, the ESV, I kind of love the way down there in the footnote, actually converts it, right? One to bushels, which only, only Bill knows. Uh, and then he converts it also over to liters, which if you're American, means nothing to you. Uh, it's not real helpful at all. I've never used a recipe that included bushels or liters in it, um, but, but we do use cups. So to put this in perspective, he reduced the wheat that they owed uh, down 147,000 cups of wheat, or you could put it into gallons. It'd be about 9,000 gallons of wheat. So you're talking a lot. Again, it's hard to picture any of this, though. Probably best to put it in financial terms. Uh, what we're talking about is, is a total of uh, about a year's worth of salary that he has just discounted them. That's, that's you know, better than the 20% off at Bed Bath & Beyond. <clears throat> so the clients are certainly grateful to him. They're going to feel indebted to him afterwards, and that's what he's going for, right? The, he's, he's aiming for his future to somehow be, be safe. Uh, In terms of the parable, he had made friends with money that he was a steward over. Now, the man's a criminal. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, today, the Securities and Exchange Commission would have him, uh, you know, arrested. He'd be in some nice white-collar prison somewhere. Uh, but at this time, you know, in theory, he would get away with it. Now, if you look at verse 8, th- this is not what you expect the boss to return, respond with. The, to all this, the boss says, or the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. You've cheated me, and then you cheated me again. Well done. Well done. That's kind of his response. The, the, the master should be absolutely furious at this man. And maybe, maybe he was, and we're not seeing that, right? But on, on some level, he also sees what he's done and, and, and that he's been outwitted. And there's some aspect of thinking, okay, I didn't see that coming. Well done. Like that was, did not see that coming. He, he's impressed by it on some level. This, this man is a dishonest scoundrel and a cheat. And, but when it came to shrewdness, This man was kind of a genius. He was clever. Now, you might remember there used to be a sport called baseball that existed. It was played in our country. Um, I used to follow a team called the Astros, and one year they actually figured out how to inform their batter what pitch was coming next while he was uh, still in the box waiting for that pitch to come uh, by banging on a trash can or whistling, maybe buzzers. That's debatable. Uh, There were no buzzers. It's not debatable. It it, it was dishonest what they were doing. It was wrong, it was shameful, but on some level you could probably step back and think that was also kind of brilliant. No one, why are you shaking your head? No one saw it till three years later and they're all wearing their rings, still wearing their rings. Now I I see your face objecting. I'm sure that Sam and Lance on Zoom are objecting to this. That's why we mute Zoom so we don't have to hear them. On some level there's this aspect of like, you know what? You, you could actually say, in the, in the terms of our parable here, right, uh, they were shrewd. They were crafty. They, they cleverly figured out how to take advantage uh, of a weakness in the system that, that I don't know what the weakness was. They just took advantage of, a, of the whole system. And, and, and so here's what you need to know, though. Jesus is not commending this, this manager's behavior. Uh, for one, if you're commending the guy, you don't label him in the story as the dishonest manager, right? With the, the closing credits, that's what his name is. That tells you kind of the, the moral statement on what's going on here. Uh, Also, as as T.W. Manson says it better than I can, he says this, he says, there is a legitimate moral difference between saying, I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly and saying, I applaud the dishonored steward because he acted cleverly. Okay? And so the cleverness is is what's being commended by the master here, not his dishonesty. And that's really the key to understanding this passage. That's when you figure out, oh, I'm going down this road the wrong direction. I need to turn around. Which, you know, explains then why Jesus in the second half of verse 8 says this, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Sons of the world. That's what he's talking about there. He's referring to those who do not have faith in Christ, those we might call secular or unbelievers, those who have no eternal perspective, Um, those who don't know Jesus as their Lord, and so they come to this with a very different perspective. And he's saying they're so good at using money, at at taking advantage of things, in in order to get what they think is important, namely their their own little kingdoms, more money, more possessions, uh, to provide for their, their future life now. And he's saying they, they do a better job with that than 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 Christians, those who are followers of Christ, people of light, as it puts it, are at at using money, at at using things in, in the way to further the kingdom of, of God. Uh, and you, you see, uh, well, let me put it this way: uh, there was a time in in college I remember when when one day someone knocked on our door, and it was a teenager. And they had this stack of magazines and we were selling these subscriptions. And he went on to tell us that uh, having this job, had helped him get out of a gang and get off drugs and stay clean. And, and, and it's been so great for him. And he said, and you know what, I've, been, I've got to sell, uh, I, I can't remember the exact number, I think it was a hundred subscriptions. And I need to sell one more subscription. And I get this big prize I've been going after all summer long. You could get me there. And we thought, wow, we are that person. We could get you there. Um, and... and You know, we we didn't do it though. We didn't do it because we're college students. We were convinced we are poor. We weren't really poor. Those are my excuses. Um, You don't need my excuses. Um, The weird thing though was, even though we we sent them away, we did feel bad if that counts for anything, and and sent them away. But uh, the next day or two days later, the door, knock at the door, there's another different teenager with the exact same situation. You can't believe it. Um, Same thing, out of drugs. Uh, out of gang, and one magazine short of reaching that goal, which seemed a little weird. It got weirder, too, because as the week went on, there were three or four more people that knocked on our door, all with the exact same situation, one away from this grand prize. Now, uh, it didn't take us too long to realize the story wasn't real. It was, a, it was a shrewd story. It was clever. It was a sales pitch to emotionally try to bring us into this and, and sell us a subscription. Um, that's a little bit of what we're, we're kind of seeing, right? What, 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 we, what we experience is what Jesus is pointing out, that out that those who don't live for Christ are working the systems to get money because that's what's most important to them. Um, they, they use money for temporal purposes better than believers use money for eternal purposes is where this is going. Uh, and, and so then let's look at the first half of verse 9 because Jesus here is speaking and he says, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous." Now, it's not a real clear statement um, to us today. Unrighteous wealth is is translated from this this word mammon, uh, meaning not just our money, but all of our possessions. Anything that has financial value that when you die is going to stay right here on planet earth uh, away from you. That's, that's what he's talking about here when he says ma'am and money, right? Uh, and, and when he says make friends, he's referring all the way back to verse 4 to, to secure a place where you're going to be welcome in to the place where, where they are, right? As a, 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 the same way the manager was. And so Jesus is telling his disciples to, to use money for eternal purposes here. Be, be wise in the way that money is used. Make friends with eternal dwellings. And he means the kingdom of God. Uh, and, and so then, you know, we're, before we move on though, quick, quick survey. On the back of your bulletin today is a quote from Jim Elliott. Uh, how many of you are familiar with that? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So that, that quote has become quite the famous quote. Uh, Elliot wrote it in his journal, Uh, October 28, 1949, Uh, and the very next line, it's interesting if you see, if you've ever seen it where it's printed out an actual picture of his journal, the very next line squished up as close as you can get to that now famous quote is the last bit of Luke 16.9, the second half of it. It's, it's written there as if it's a proof text for the actual quote itself. And Eliot quotes it um, just the second half. He says, uh, the part that says, uh, that when it shall fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Uh, I don't know what his translation is, but it should be close to the ESV. A- in other words, what we're seeing here is, is, is Jim Elliot absolutely understood this. Um, to spend the wealth you have, the money you have, the time you have, the skill you have, give that stuff, invest that stuff, spend that stuff for the purposes of the kingdom of God to make eternal friends, as the way Jesus is putting it in this parable. And, and most likely, by friends, Jesus means fellow humans, okay? fellow humans, someone that, that you might actually meet in eternity and, and, and they might thank you because you shared the gospel with them. Or they might thank you for financially supporting a church or ministry where they, they came to believe the gospel or for buying them a cup of coffee and, and answering questions and building into a relationship and encouraging them in the Lord, something like that. You see, uh, Norval Geldenheier probably not how you pronounce his name, he asked this, do we use our worldly possessions in such a manner that there will be persons in eternity who will be glad to receive us? Do we? You see, Jesus is is drawing this analogy be, between how the manager planned for his future unemployment, knowing that time was short, it's coming to an end, and, and the way that we should plan for eternity, since our days in this world also are numbered. He's saying, spend it on, on, on more important things. Um He's not teaching us in any way, though, that we can use money to purchase a a place in heaven, a a salvation. Only uh, uh, Only faith in Jesus Christ can accomplish that, and that was purchased for you on the cross at Golgotha. Now, simply put, Jesus is teaching us to use our money differently. Right? To 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 not make consumerism or collecting of money, to not make those things the purpose of our life, because it's so easy to think, that's what life's about. Let's just get more of that. And 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 so when you you might find yourself when you're pressed with the question of whether life has has meaning either even, we we don't want to do what so many people in the world do today. That is, you know, you go out and you you buy something new, you buy something nice and in a way that just paints over the existential crack in the in, in the wall. You know, the crack whose real source is a, a faulty foundation constructed of, uh, of anything but Christ. We want to think about how we are using the money that we have. Uh, J.C. Ryle summarizes this part as saying, this, this plainly teaches that the right use of our money in the world from the right motives will be for our benefit in the world to come. It will not justify us. It will not save us from God's judgment any more than good deeds can do this, but it does provide evidence of grace. You see, the verses of follow, the ones we still need to read and we will in just a moment, are actually the application that Jesus has for this parable here. Uh, so follow along again. Verse 10. <clears throat> One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. much. If then you have been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And so the first application is that God expects you and me to use money generously and faithfully for his kingdom purposes. Now, if you're anything like me, we we tend to tell ourselves, you know, if, if I was rich... If I won the lottery tomorrow or if I invented a, hover cra- or a hoverboard and got crazy rich off of it, uh, that I would, I would give so much money to, to my church uh, that I'd give it to the spread of the gospel and missionaries and those in need. I would be the most generous person in the world if I just won, you know, millions of dollars. And, and here Jesus helps us to actually be honest in that situation about what we'd really do. He, he's saying, you want to know how you'd handle a whole lot of money? Look at the way that you're handling very little money, well, however much or little that might be, because the one who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Now, it's interesting because we tend to treat our money as though that's the big thing, the, the, the most important thing. That's one of the biggest areas that we can, we can become stressed about when money gets low or we're worried about where it's going to come from, uh, and we see it as maybe the most significant thing. Uh, It's interesting here because did you notice that Jesus actually equates money here with the small thing, the less... Uh, significant things in that. As you start seeing what terms go together, uh, that's where the where where our money, our unrighteous wealth goes. And, and instead, though, the 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 big thing here, the the true riches, right, is this nondescript view uh, uh, looking towards eternity, something spiritual, something uh, of eternal value. And so uh, that's one the way that Jesus flips it. The other way we see it uh, is in verse twelve. Here he flips this sense of possession. He's asking if you. We tend to think right. If you're if you're not faithful with with what belongs to you, why would I trust you with what belongs to someone else? And Jesus does it the opposite here. If you're not faithful in what belongs to someone else, why would they give you something that belongs to you? And it's a small little nuance, but it's, it's very significant because he, he's telling us here that the unrighteous wealth, our money, our cash, our possessions, you know, verse 12, they actually belong to somebody else. The, the wealth we have, no matter how much or how little, we, we must recognize is really not yours or mine because we're managers of God's money. It's his. And, and we're called to be faithful with his money. And then only later in eternity will we receive something that is ours. And that's not described, but you can imagine that's something wonderful. Now, I know, we hear this, and, and many of us are, are probably just need to learn that to begin with, that, that the money that I have is not mine, it ultimately belongs to God. And, and others of us probably know that. We've heard that intellectually, we know that, but, but really we need to believe that, to, to live with our money that way. And that's a much harder thing to do. Parents, um, is this part of your children's discipleship? to teaching them to be faithful stewards of however little money they get, however it might be, little chores, allowance, whatever it might be. And teaching them, even at a young age, to take a portion of what they have and, and to generally give it to, give it to the purposes of, of God's kingdom. To, to teach them at a very young age how hard it can be to steward money instead of possess money. It is so difficult. But also teaching them how rewarding it can be to invest your money in godly purposes. And again, faithfulness with money will not earn anyone salvation, but willingness to give to God's purposes is a fruit. It's a sign that our heart is indeed committed and submitted to the Lord. And that's what the last verse we're looking at today is getting at. Verse 13, again, follow along. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We're all aware that money can become an idol in someone's life. We're very aware of that. Uh, it is interesting, though. Jesus again uses the word mammon here, right? Meaning, meaning we're to understand not just cash, but all of our possessions have the potential to become idols that we bow down to, masters that we worship. Um, you know, those we bow down to. But, but, but we are called to submit and to worship only the Lord God. Commandment number one, right? From the start, right? Uh, practically speaking, speaking, we are to bring ourselves and everything we possess, literally everything, our home, our cars, computers, books, Nintendo, shovel, oven, hair straightener, everything under the Lordship of, of Jesus Christ, knowing that ultimately it belongs to him. And Jesus is very clear here. We, we cannot worship God in wealth. And, and I want you to notice something. He's not saying you shouldn't worship God in wealth. But you can't. You're actually incapable of doing so. And he knows that. He knows the way that we are. We, we are created, right? He, um, he actually knows, in fact, that we're going to want to worship both. And some part of us is going to think, I, I want to worship Jesus. He's my master. But also money. Because money is important. And he's saying, you, you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. We only have capacity for one master. One. Uh, further, he, he points out, if money is your master, here's what's going to happen. You are going to hate God. You are going to despise God. Verse 13, that's what it says there, right? If you make money your master, that's how you're going to treat God instead of being your master. We think in terms of being servants. Servants not only obey their masters, but they also depend upon their master for safety and for provision, which I think is a helpful thing to think about. Because do you view your bank account as though it were uh, a lowercase God, providing you with safety, providing you with provision uh, and the things you need? Or do you view your bank account uh, as a means by which the Lord God Almighty is providing for you safety and provision? And it seems like a small thing, but it's actually a, a big significant there. It's a, a question that we need to know. Where, where is your heart? Now, before we finish, I do want to make very clear. I, I think any time we read about Scripture and money, we realize two things. One, that we're really, we really don't have the right view. Not all the time, not as often as we want. And two, we begin to be incredibly ashamed for all the money we might have. Um, don't be ashamed of it. The wealth you have is a, a good gift of the Lord to you that he has made you a manager of. Do not be ashamed of that. But, but also remember that wealth can and should be used for spiritual good. It's a tool and, and we need to be thinking deeply on how to best use that tool for kingdom work. And that might mean just starting with the mindset, a, a posture of heart that, that confesses often to God in prayer, Father, this money in my account and my wallet is, is your money. Help me to really believe that. And the next question we might be praying is, is, Lord, how would you have me to invest this money? And I think that's where it really becomes this incredibly difficult question because where we always want to go with that is, is think, okay, I give to my church, uh, I give to RUF and crew and the missionaries. That's, that's kingdom use of money And then the rest of it's mine. And they're so separate that we we really struggle to think of anything. Those are good things to give it to. Um, They're on the Zoom. I'm not saying not to give to crew or RUF or your church. Um, But it's good for us to understand something here. That when Jesus speaks these words first to his disciples in this moment, he did not have funding vocational ministry in mind. Because that wasn't even a thing yet. There wasn't anyone that the disciples could have been like, okay, like, who's our missionary? Let's, let's up that a little bit. There wasn't anything for them to do that, meaning, meaning, and this is where we sometimes get off as the church today, we think we pay for someone else to do ministry, and Jesus has something very different. He, he wants you to use your money in ways that are for the kingdom that are going to be outside of that sometimes, right? There is a way to use money for God's eternal purpose that is not supporting vocational ministries. And that's what I want us thinking on and, and discussing this week. This is where you know how do we invest our money in eternal purposes? Because you got to start asking these questions. That if I take my money and I buy someone coffee or lunch or something like that, and we're growing the relationship, is is that an eternal purpose or is it not? What do you think? I see one head shaken. The rest of you not so sure. What if you bought a, a gift card for a friend that, you know, has really just been down on something and you wrote a note of encouragement? Is, is that an eternal value? Is there use in that money that way? Or, or would meeting a financial need of someone and just maybe telling them, you know, perhaps the Lord gave me this money so that I could help you out in this moment. Would, would that be a wise use of God's money? You see, what the Lord has, has taught us in, in this passage has to be discussed further. My, my notes abruptly end right here, not because I got distracted or never finished them, but, but because there's this, this difficult thing to know, how do I actually apply this to my life and, and think outside of that box? If I don't just pay someone who's in vocational ministry, how do I use this money that God has made me a manager over for, for eternal purposes? And it's important because it brings you back into remembering that, that the ministry to the world that, that God intends his people to do was intended to be done by all the people in the church, not professionals. And, and that's where we're kind of going to leave you here today. And I know you're thinking, well, that wasn't a good application. That really stunk. Um, I want you to apply it. And, and so we've got this, this list of questions that we've been doing the last few weeks. We put on the front page of the website, and I know... Uh, If you're like us, it is so easy to just never come back around to them and just forget until you get here the next Sunday and like, oh, yeah, we should have done that. Um, I understand that. But I I really mean this. Take some time and think about this because, you know, this whole parable of Jesus is leading us somewhere to think about deeply. And and that's going to apply in your life in some way. And and it's going to take discussion and and prayer to come to those answers. And so I, I really, really want you to do that. And if you don't have anyone to do that with, uh, give me a call at the end of this week because I'll be on a bike tomorrow morning in the middle of Missouri. Uh, but give me a call. I'll gladly uh, discuss this. I would enjoy those conversations. So that is the weirdest end to the sermon because I have no notes. That's just the end. Let's, let's pray. Uh, gracious Lord, money's not evil. It's not. Uh, but it certainly can be used for evil. In our hearts, we can begin to look to wealth instead of you. We can find ourselves bowing down to money because it provides for us safety and provision. Um, Because it can buy things that give us dopamine hits that we enjoy. Lord, you alone are worthy of our worship and you alone are faithful of our service and our love. Lord, please teach us and empower us to joyfully use money wisely for your kingdom while never falling in love with it. And Father, as we we go to have these conversations today or later in this week, I ask that uh, that you would help us to think through uh, even how the disciples who first heard it might have thought to use their money uh, and how we as as your disciples today and this amazing year of 2020 might use your money for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.